All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. This is QLS Classic. My name is Questlove. We go back into the archives, May of 2019, and we interview the legendary proprietor of Black Music Month herself, the Queen, Deanna Williams. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. What's love in the place? Yeah. With Deanna and the fam? Yeah. Is I so cool? Yeah. I am, I am, I Suprema, roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. And I can say I hung. Yeah. With that beautiful lady. Yeah. From Unsung. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. And I hope that one day. Yeah. I can be a guest. Yeah. On Soulful Sunday. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. My name's Boss Bill. Yeah. To the extreme. Yeah. On QLS with. Yeah. Ebony Moonbeams. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. I'm unpaid Bill. Yeah. And here's the thing. Yeah. Last night. Too many chicken wings. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. It's Laia. Yeah. And my godmother Deanna. Yeah. Mother of Black Music Month. Yeah. Nobody knows it better. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. My name is Deanna. Yeah. Not banana. Yeah. <laughs> Light skin like one. Yeah. But I'm Deanna. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll 
Nice. Nice one. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Quest Love Supreme. Woo. We are officially in back home. Yes. We are hey. back home. Steve, yeah. we are back. Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> Steve back. back where we belong. How do you feel to be back? Ladies, we are live. Okay, we are recording right <laughs> we are recording right now uh, at Milk Boy Studio, formerly known and still sort of kind of currently studio. known as the studio. Uh, we are actually in the room where uh, the lyrics of You Got Me, the song that changed my life, was uh, was recorded. The, the vocals were done. All the things fall apart vocals were done here as subsequently every Roots album afterwards from Phrenology on down to rising down but we are in studio a a lot of a lot of philadelphia history wow yeah is in this room yeah it's, How, how's it, are, it smells do, like do, it. do you have ptsd steve man <laughs> i'm telling you it's, <laughs> it's gritty here <laughs> yeah. it's got it's got the grit and the yeah medicine. this is one of the places that rich made me cut vocals like a verse like 30 damn times yeah. like it was yeah it i was told like yeah this, this it's all rich nickels here yeah, you know, yeah. This, this is this is, the, this is that place. the spirit of the Rich Nichols episode. He showed me porn in the room next door. <laughs> oh, your first porn? How'd that go? Not my first, but my first Rich Nichols. Oh porn. no! Oh wow! No. Okay, <laughs> made him come twice. Saturday morning. <laughs> Can we not Shit. do this right now? <laughs> oh, yes, right there. <laughs> we have guests in the room. Oh, um, wait a minute. Uh oh. Would you like the honor, uh, Laia? Well, don't do that to oh, me because yeah, you, her, you yeah. prepared and you wrote it down. I'd have to. I'd have no, to... but you... see, I'll, I'll come like, like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you can do the cleanup. Can I? I'll do it, but you have to do the. the... No, I think this. I, I think it's only apropos and and oh, for you. I agree. I agree. To introduce our guest today, yeah, because. Woo. Okay. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm, based on your talking, I, I feel like. I feel like this is the chip off the old block here, so Yeah, it's a it's a small chip of a big block. How about that? I'm the small <laughs> chip of a big block. Um I love I see, chips. You're gonna make me be boxes. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the woman who <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you know what it is? Deanna, you have a way Pressure. you have a way to make everyone <laughs> lose their cool. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. no. Yo. Fonte, dispute that. I'm please. literally... Nope. I'm super oh. cool around here. I'm good over here. I'm fine. Um, yeah. I'm well, cool. it's just me and Amir. What? I'm literally... I feel... I can be in the room with any human being and just be like, no big deal. It's President Obama. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jordan. Whatever. Stevie. I'll be down in a second. Like, but with Deanna... There's there's a very regal like yeah. I always sit up straight. very regal. Get now. your grammar <laughs> and your use, diction I together. Use, I use my college words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Oh. All right, so go ahead, go ahead, Amir. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, do that. Uh, yeah, this this we we are in the presence of royalty right now. This is going to be the longest introduction ever, <laughs> the most. An eloquent one I've ever done in the history of the show. I think it's ineloquent, um, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Take it from Mr. Vogue himself over there. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, this woman has history in the city of Philadelphia. Um, I've, I mean, my career took uh, uh, a. I can't even talk. See what I, I mean? Know, See you what gotta... I mean? It's hard to describe. 
Have some berries and relax. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Start with your story. You say you can start with that way. Though. I will. Yeah, I will say that I first my my first real entrance into the non nepotism Leandro's world that I came from really started with I am and interning and networking. The International Association of African American Music. Yes. Uh, she. Thank you. Wow. She is about. Oh, no one knew what I am. No. I thought for. she was talking about Nas album. No, yeah, so did I. Where is this going? <laughs> oh my God, I'm not going to let it be 10 minutes before I say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Deanna Williams. I'm thrilled and honored to be with you. And Radio let me legend. Officially welcome you to the city of brotherly love, oh, sisterly affection. So she also yes, coined that term. I forgot to mention that. Oh, wow. The sisterly affection part. Yes. So she's got ah. proclamations and things I like, like that. that. Yeah, inclusion, right? Totally. Yes, Women have been it. part of the fabric of Philadelphia and everywhere, every place. Yeah. For as long as we see, I feel like I'm listening to Philly radio right now. Just close my eyes. Like (laughs) her voice is very soothing. Yeah, yeah, it is. is. "Mm." I feel like she's going to turn around and interview us any moment. That's possible. It's discourse. It's conversation. It's human exchange. Mm, That's what we do. Always spoke. I was about to say the one area that you have not affected Lyia. Is it no? Because sometimes you clean up for a company, and then you're like the Lenny Kravitz episode, which yeah, we got nominated really for. Up. We did get nominated, which we right. get, that one episode you you cleaned up nicely, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying that <laughs> it was Lenny Kravitz, uh-huh. of course yes, you did, right? But, yeah, you know, we all looked at that. Day. I sounded like Deanna Williams. Was just that like day. whatever. I raised her right there. Yeah, you did. Yeah. She knew. Yes. How, when when did this great. voice come to be? When did you? I feel like you're always in regal honey milk. I feel like the term <laughs> honey milk or whatever. No, that's not what my lover says when we're fighting. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. No. No, I, I grew up, first of all, I'll take you back to the beginning. I was born in Queens. Uh, raised as a small young girl in the Bronx. And about 10, my family moved to Puerto Rico. My mother's Puerto Rican. I'm half Puerto Rican. So my mother was a college professor. So we moved to PR, to Bayamón, which is where a lot of my family is. And I spent two years perfecting my non-Spanish, my my New Yorican Spanish. So you had a New Yorican voice? Uh well no, well no just no accent if you're talking you about speak like fluent Spanish ah uh-huh, I read it write it and speak it mm-hmm. and I learned to do that I learned how to speak it I learned Spanish before I learned English because my mother was in school my father was working but my grandmother who spoke no English whatsoever was my caretaker so I learned Spanish before I learned English or probably simultaneously and this was your mother's mom my mother's mom okay. my maternal okay. side of the family is Puerto Rican my father's from Culpeper my father has transitioned but my people were from Culpeper Virginia so yeah um, Spanish English but New York mm-hmm. and then when we moved back to the states I grew up in Harlem as a teenager. So I was informed by this amazing upbringing that I had in New York, a cosmopolitan city with people from all, you know, spectrums, all parts of the world and all socioeconomic backgrounds. So my, when I consider my formulation, my development, it's as a result of being in this gumbo of humanity in New York City. 
You were how old when you came back to? I was about 12. 12. So I spent my formative teenage years in Harlem, the Schomburg and I have a question to ask you. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm currently. Ever been to the Latin court? (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. I have. uh, I'm currently working on a project right now that I didn't even know existed until about a year ago. Um, But the world doesn't seem to know that in the summer of 1969, uh, a festival was thrown in Harlem uh, with, I mean, in short, we called it Black Woodstock. Uh, It was Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, the Staples Singers, Jesse Jackson. Literally, like when you see the footage, it's 40,000 people in a Harlem park. Uh, in the summer of 69. Was it Mount Morris Park? Yep. Mount Morris Park? Yes. Okay. Do you I, have I any to... recollection of, of... Mount Morris Park? That period and... Well, no, 69, no. But Mount Morris Park, absolutely, because I spent many uh, times there for free concerts. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So what was the environment musically in Harlem like? Because, I mean, as, as much as I hear about the the folklore of of Harlem, uh, not even in the jazz sense, but post jazz. I I don't have a feel of what the culture was like. It was. I mean, we're talking about the birthplace of the Harlem Renaissance. Harlem has always been a, a capital, a mecca of music and culture. So I grew up hearing music everywhere in Harlem. It was blasting out of people's radios and their cars and their homes, the free concerts. We had a program in Harlem called Jazzmobile that was founded by, are you familiar with this? Dr. Billy Taylor Okay, was the founder of Jazzmobile and it provided free lessons to inner city youth. So for me, I studied the flute and my teacher was the legendary Jimmy Heath. Oh, wow. Wait. So, I, I, what? Yes. Man. Yes. Jimmy Heath was my flute teacher. And ironically, years later, I ran into him in St. Louis. He was with his brothers, uh, the, Heath the Heath brothers. brothers. Yeah. yeah. And he was, we were in the Ritz Carlton. I was there to attend Steve McKeever's wedding. Steve McKeever, the founder of Hidden Beach, Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, who signed Jill, Jill Scott, Scott and many others from Philadelphia Kindred. Such a radio person. I, I wouldn't have. We're trying to get you there. That's the okay. So anyway, I saw Jimmy, and Jimmy calls me over, and he says to his brothers, "Deanna was my best student. I wanted to bore a hole, go through the floor because (laughs) I am so bad. I was horrible, talentless. Really? Uh, You probably was the prettiest though. Well, lovely, but honey, I could not. (laughs) You know, you have to be able to improvise, and I just did not have those skills. I had an appreciation, a sensitivity, a passion for the music, but I just don't have any talent. So So I always hear about, um, maybe like from the generation that came before I came up, and I guess like I'm, I'm one of the last people that like the idea of like music appreciation and who knows what this... uh, Mm instrument it is and oh i want to try that a viola you know that sort of thing but was it just expected even if you didn't have musical talent was it just expected like for a non-musical person you just saw the flute and was like okay I'll no I'll actually learn my first boyfriend that i lost my virginity to okay. from brooklyn lethal he played the flute <laughs> 
So as a result of being uh, around him in intimate circumstances one day, <laughs> I just picked up his instrument <laughs> and, no I no and I started to blow. And I started to blow. I'm not following that. And I started to blow. No, we're not, we're not godmother. We're not doing that. We're we're too soon. They don't know you like that way. So remember that time when you thought she was super class and then you didn't know there was another side? This is another Jesus and murals. I'm telling you what happened. I've ever had. Anyway, but, uh, that's how I came to study the flute. Yeah. But you know how. what? Interesting. So to your question, Amir, yes. the question about music, music in Harlem was everywhere. And even people who did not have talent or could play an instrument had an appreciation. We used to, when we got music, we would sit together in a group and devour an album. We would read the liner notes because back in the day, mm -hmm. everybody did liner notes for their music. <laughs> we would read where it was recorded, who was the engineer, where everything, all of the details, the minutia of a record, not just did we absorb the music, of course, we were smoking weed at that time. Absolutely. Okay, and you we're know, smoking had some weed at this time also. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little mind right. Some things, things never change. All right, yeah. And, and we would just, we were very knowledgeable when it came to music. That was expected of us, especially growing up in Harlem. That was the expectation that you were down with whatever was new coming out, that you were going to their shows, that you were up on what was happening musically. Do you have any siblings? I don't. I'm an only child. What? Yeah. Cousins? Oh, lots of cousins. Uh, I was sure. about to say, you're Puerto, Puerto Rican. Rican. You better exactly. have some cousins. Right. Exactly. I've got tons of cousins. So yeah. how did... Uh, now, this is unusual, because mm. usually uh, it's the trickle cultural trickle-down uh, system of the older sibling puts the youngest one on to something, and no. you absorb it. So who was your My source? daddy. My father. My so your father, dad was hip enough to know? My father played the radio all the time. We listened to WABC, The Good Guys, and we also listened to WWRL, which was the African-American AM station. So I grew up hearing you know, all the, the, the mix sounds because back in the day when I grew up, they played black and white artists on WABC. Uh, but then WWRL, only all black music. So that's where I got... My ears, my daddy, big on music. But the the only all black station was the AM station. WWRL, okay. yeah, the AM station. Who who were the personalities of the day? That well, you grew up on? Um, Enoch Gregory, um, just you know the good guys. I can't remember all the names. Cousin Brucey. Okay. I mean, there were a ton of radio personalities. But the first woman that I ever heard on the radio, Vi Higginson. Vi Higginson. Okay. Well, she was on WBLS with yeah. Frankie Crocker, and we're talking early 70s because I graduated from high school 71, okay. the, the year that Marvin Gaye released What's Going On. Wow. Um, that, that is the soundtrack to my life. That's the music. Early, yeah, Aretha Franklin. That's that would have just came out as you were graduating because yeah, that like, was May seventy one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it did. Wow. That's when it came out. Can you imagine so, going out into the world and that being <laughs> new? What's going on? <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so yeah, then WLIBFM became WBLS, and that's where I heard Vi Higginson. And when I heard her, 
I just fell in love. I was enamored with her voice, her her style. It sounded like you were in her bedroom. It sounded very intimate, and that's what I so went for. So that's who you emulate? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And she was, was on-air personality? Like she was, she was like, an oh, on-air my. personality. She's still on the radio now on wow. a station uh, that's uh, online in New York. And uh, what, But she was Doris Troy's sister, and she did the play uh, Mama... I want to sing. That's by Higginson who produced it. And Doris Troy, just one look. That was her sister. So anyway, by Higginson. Okay. Yeah. And Frankie Crocker. I'm a graduate of Frankie Crocker University. Um, But I kind of. Can you explain? I I wanted to go to school, the Frankie Crocker school. Okay. So. Explain the magnitude of the power that Frankie Crocker had on New York and nationwide. Frankie Crocker was a radio personality and a programmer. I would say he was the dean of uh, FM Black Radio at its at the beginning, and he programmed WBLS one hundred seven point five in New York and later other stations around the country. But he had the most effortless style, a very commanding presence on the radio, and he introduced New York audiences to Barry White, uh, Disco, The Sound of Philadelphia. But he would also mix in, maybe he would throw in some Frank Sinatra. He could do that because he was the program director. But it was an eclectic sound. And he said it was 360 degrees of the total experience of black music. So Frankie Crocker hired me after I spent two years in Washington, D.C. at WHUR 96.3, which is also a very important radio station in the history of, of music music and black radio because it was the home of the original Quiet Storm as created by Kathy Hughes, who is my best friend, also the founder of Radio One, TV One, Interactive One, Urban One. And that's Melvin so Lindsay, Melvin right? Lindsay yeah. was, he wasn't the first host, oh, but he became, yeah, there were some, there were, I think, I two other Melvin. hosts. Yeah, yeah from also BET. from BET, yeah, exactly, yeah. Video Soul. Like Our first was. black celebrity yeah. who passed from, from HIV. Exactly, yeah. that's very true, Laia. Yeah. But Melvin was also my protege because he was a student. Howard University owned the radio station, but it was a commercial outlet uh, in the middle of the dial. And Frankie Crocker liberally borrowed from what we were doing in Washington, D.C., <laughs> Okay. At, 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 well, yeah, he took DC. you. Yeah, he took me. <laughs> that's true, too. After a while, but that's where I started as Ebony Moonbeams at WHUR in D.C. So Chocolate you went City. to Howard University. I did not go to Howard. I was, I was very, very silly. I was very caught up. I was hired on the eve of my uh, 19th birthday by a gentleman named Bob Nighthawk Terry, who's also another legendary. Yeah. If you saw the movie Talk to Me. Yes, yeah. Cedric the uh, Entertainer. Yeah. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that was Ced's character. That right, was Ced's right, right. character. Okay. But that was the gentleman who hired me and gave me my break in radio in D.C. So two years after being Ebony Moonbeams and being in D.C., I got a call on the hotline from Frankie Crocker offering me a job first in St. Louis, that didn't work out too well. I went to St. Louis, and all due respect to, to St. Lou, it was just too small for me. Okay. okay, it just wasn't. And my mama went with me, and she was like, "Oh, not too much culture here. We gotta, oh, we have to go uh, someplace else." My mother, okay. 
It's true. I, it is. You know, my mama's from there. I used to get mama, sipped there. The, oh my right, god! Yes, know. Jerry curls until like two thousand. Yeah, that wasn't I, that wasn't Still. working for me. And then he offered me a job in Chicago. That didn't work either because the owners called me and said the money that Mr. Crocker offered you, we cannot afford to pay you. And I was like, okay, deuces. <laughs> and then he called me again on the hotline at WHR. At this point, I was doing middays, and he said, "Come, come to New York. Come, come to BLS. Come home. So, come home." Uh, wow, this is this is the episode I've been waiting for. All yeah. the questions I've had about every city. Can you explain why DC is such an important mecca for black music and being the chocolate city and even even now today, like shows that we do in DC are way different. Maybe maybe Detroit comes in a uh, comes in a close second but what is it about dc so i'm assuming that the 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 musical diet that the city is raised on that determines the the caliber of artists that that come through the city am i am i correct yeah you you mentioned chocolate city it was definitively chocolate city when i was there it's been ultra gentrified gentrified now so it is no longer chocolate city but the the dc that you're referring to um you know it's the dmv so it's the district of columbia virginia and maryland but this you had a lot the migration you have people coming from the south even the midwest moving to dc for government jobs it's a government city it's the you know the nation's capital largest black middle class in the country there you go so it created this middle class but people who had disposable income and you know music is at the core of our dna for black folks all due respect to everybody else but for us i think we're born in our dna with um with a sponge that can absorb all the genres of our creation. And so in D.C., you had this this middle class. You had people who had dispo- disposable income. They bought tickets to every show. They went to the clubs. You know, it was just part of our culture to, to uh, embrace music and the artists that came through town. Not to mention Go-Go. Well, Go-Go, of course, the genre that was born exclusively in D.C. And and Chuck Brown, all of those people were okay. my friends. Can we finally have this conversation? <laughs> about Go-Go? Yes, yes. Please, please. Yeah. All right. You know what point I'm about to bring up? Well, I just wanted to know, what, 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 what year would you say was the origin, the beginning of Go-Go? Early 70s. By the time I got to D.C. in 1973, when I got there, it was in full swing. Okay. Chuck Trouble Brown, funk, right? Trouble Funk, yeah. all of that was... In full swing. Think the thing is, is that okay? I know that early Soul Searcher forty fives I have are more breakbeat, mm-hmm. traditional Ashley's soul. Roach Clip, right? And all that stuff that that Chuck Brown did before, like okay, this is authentic go go. However, I truly believe, and this is where this my this is a very unpopular take uh-huh. on the history go go, but I believe the DNA of Go-Go starts with Grover Washington Jr.'s Mr. Magic. Mm. I've heard that before. I've heard that before, I've too. heard that before. That's the still. rhythm beat. Yeah. The rhythm palette yeah. of Go-Go is... Dunk, dunk, but what dunk, year is Mr. Dunk, Magic? Dunk, dunk. Mr. Magic, 73. 73. And so... Maybe Trouble Funk was 71. No, <laughs> but I'm just saying that... I, I would assume that with that sort of... Backdrop. 
definitely played it a lot on the radio. I was radio about to say, was, that was a that big many record. bands have played it and played it and played it and put it into the repertoire. Yeah, this was our shit in D.C. Woo-hoo! So, I, I wonder if any D.C. music historians will back me up in the fact that I gave you the evidence. They gonna do what I did, but then I started in '72. <laughs> like, like, right, Dan? Very possible. Yeah. But, but when I got facts. there in '73, it was it was everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, you could not go to a club and not hear go-go music. It was just. So could they have been an influence on him? Could possibly. You know it could what have I mean? been in the reverse, though, Amir. Okay, I'm, I'm just saying that most go-go that I know of, like the first example that it was truly played to me was around 78 79 and I, but i've investigate i've investigated many of those dc funk bands in all my record collections and the kind of the music was still post soul post p funkish that sort of thing and so I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. I, I'm going to find right. somebody to back Well, we're also talking about the home of Marvin Gaye. Boom. <laughs> Drop the mic. Marvin Gaye. Duke Jesus. Ellington. Duke Ellington. I mean, just yeah, great. But That's right. When Marvin Gaye got his band, who did he come to? Philadelphia. Uh-oh. The Frankie Beverly <laughs> Man. Yeah, but, Again. But when you want to play weekend shows, where you go, DC? <laughs> when you want to do a Saturday and a Sunday. Okay, okay, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not going to find anybody to back up this argument. <laughs> So, of 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 your formative years, what city, what city do you feel had the most culture as far as uh, impact and richness in black music? Is it DC? Is it New York? It's all of Is the it above. Philadelphia? It's a combination. So again, I grew up in Harlem. Mm-hmm. I spent radio formative years in DC in Chocolate City with black folks, and then I came to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, at the point when I came to Philadelphia, uh, I came because I started dating Kenny Gamble and instantly fell in love with him. So when I came to Philadelphia, the sound of Philly was in full throttle. And uh, we're talking Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Teddy was still in the group when I came. He started as the drummer and then moved into the lead position uh but it was patty labelle and the people's choice and the tramps and uh the delphonics and the stylistics and all of that was going on when i initially came to philly in the mid-70s and the first time i really came here was with gene karn who is the godmother to my oldest son khalif mm-hmm. uh gene was about to sign her deal with Gamble, but I had met Gamble a year earlier in D.C. when I was hosting an O.J.'s concert, and we formed our friendship. But when I first visited Philadelphia International was with Jean when she signed her deal. Was it always on 313 Broad Street? It was 309 South 309. Broad Street. I'm sorry, yes. 313 was my high school. Oh, okay. Or yeah, my three. performing arts. Yeah, 309. Just, mm-hmm. just to go back to uh, the Chuck Brown, Go-Go, Mr. Magic thing, I found a quote from Chuck Brown about uh, that. Uh-oh. Yes. And he basically admits that he got it from Grover, but says Ooh. that Grover, they both got it from somewhere else. And the quote is, all I did was break the beat in half. I got it from Grover for sure, but we really both got that from the spirit, from gospel. It's an old church beat. Oh, oh wow. shucks. Look at that. Mm-mm. <laughs> I'll give you half a deal of siren. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. 
Okay, I'll let that one go. <laughs> um, Thank you for that clarification, though. Yes. Yeah. Got to get the truth out there. Yeah. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson, uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Philadelphia, um, in in the, well, really at the height of it. First of all, do you credit Gamble and Huff for being the proprietors of disco? Many have said that. Absolutely. Well, Isaac Hayes started first because he had strings and. Barry White because he's the first to go to yeah, 120-something BPMs. But, you know, as far as the, the, the sheen and the, and the class, and plus, you know, no Earl one Young. can dispute Earl Young. Earl no, Young. No one can Earl, dispute Earl, Earl Young. Earl will not let you get out of a room without giving him his props. So <laughs> I, Earl I, Young was the drummer to, to the second, yes. to this very second and forever. Yeah. And Earl Young, the founder of the Tramps and the drummer, but also the studio drummer for many, not all, of the Gamble Huff songs. So I definitely give them credit. Acknowledge he played with Salsol too. He did. Okay. He he played with everybody, but yeah. he was a primary drummer for many of the Gamble Huff sessions. 
So, yeah. So when I came here initially, it was heady because there was all kind of music. It was jazz. It wasn't just gamble and huff and what they were doing. It was, you know, I knew of the tradition of great gospel artists, the Dixie Hummingbirds. I met Ira Tucker when I first moved here, Ira Tucker Sr. Uh, you know, the, we're talking about the Ward Singers, all of that. Yeah. Rosetta Thorpe, as as you thought, know, yeah. um, Fonte and I were talking about that yesterday. Rosetta Thorpe, the mother of rock and roll mm-hmm. here, Philadelphia. Really? Yes. Did not know that. What? I didn't know that. Rosetta. No. I helped induct her in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I did not know that. Like, don't you know King Britt? And he had, he was on his big sister Rosetta Thorpe. Yeah, he did. He did a project. Yeah. He did a project on really? her. Yeah. No, I mean, she wasn't born here, but she lived here. She lived. Okay, okay, she, okay. She lived here and she died here. All right. So, yes, Rosetta Thorpe. Each one teach one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we're at it, um, to the person that keeps on putting Beachy Thompson from the Dixie Hummingbirds as my great-grandfather. <laughs> he is not, not true. <laughs> and I'm the one that keeps erasing it, so can oh, y'all please? Page? Yeah, like, I just want to put that out there, too. Mm. I love that you <laughs> erase things off your Wikipedia page. That's amazing. No, because every journalist is like, you know, three generations. And I'm like, no, oh, I, Beachy Thompson is not my grandfather. So I just want to put that out there. That's important. Um, so... Any notable, like, are there any notable historical Philadelphia musical stories that you've seen firsthand that? So many. You know, was it like, I mean, just hey, like, here's I'm a song called I Don't Love You Anymore. Question. Would you like it? Or, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. That, or the day that. that he left the Blue Notes. Like, what? Oh, well, Teddy was my neighbor. He was my physical borrow cup of sugar neighbor and also one of my closest friends mm-hmm. till his transition. In fact, I delivered the obituary at his memorial. Um, watching Teddy Pendergrass leave the um, situation with Harold because they were fighting. They were duking it out. I mean, they were having physical fights. It was abusive and <laughs> out of control by the time he left the group. But to see Teddy Pendergrass go from uh, being with the group and then becoming one of the biggest artist in soul music and and he was crossing over pop he was going to become a movie star mm-hmm. he had a teddy jeans line <laughs> Gamble did with the him. Commercials, yeah. yes teddy jeans but to uh, witness that was pretty spectacular just to see the energy that happened as a result of the sound of philadelphia worldwide that was pretty heady did i you, mean i have tons of stories with all have, the artists did you have any influence in getting him to finally settle down with a natural as opposed to what Teddy, is... Teddy, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Teddy had many hairstyles uh, during the duration Yeah, I was like, who was the influence in his life that, that told him to do to this do. Shirley Temple? Yeah. Or... No, I, that was before me. And, and had I known him at the time, I would have said, <laughs> what is up with that? Okay, yeah. your hair prettier than mine. You need to just fall back. No, Teddy, Teddy was quite something, oh, quite extraordinary. Well, you met him, Amir. Yeah. Yeah, you were in the room with him. You know, he had a magnetic energy Unlike, which, same thing that Marvin had. Um, there's only a few people. Sam Cooke had it. That, that je ne sais quoi. Miles Davis had it. Miles Davis, my good friend, Miles Davis. He definitely had it. <laughs> you know Miles Davis? Miles. Oh. Can, can we get a Miles story? Can we get a Miles story? Miles Davis story? Please, please tell the story. Okay, oh let's what see. period of Miles Davis? Okay, we're talking um, early 70s when I was in D.C. And 
M. Tume, who is a, a beloved right. of mine. A Heath connection. Yes. Another Heath connection. Well, that's how I met him, through his father, Jimmy Heath. Okay. Uh, but he was playing uh, percussions. He was playing congas with Miles. And they came to D.C., and I was on the air at WHR. He said, come by and check out the show. So after the set, he introduces me to Miles, and he says, Miles, meet Deanna. Deanna, meet Miles. And Miles says... Marry me. <laughs> not hello, not how are you. I'm standing there looking at him like, uh, no. And he says, well, why not? And I said, because uh, I just met you. I don't know you like that. But I had on this long white dress and a white gay lay my head wrap. And he says to me, but you look like a motherfucking bride. <laughs> <laughs> So from there, we developed a very um, dear friendship and um, went on for years until I started dating Kenny Gamble. And Gamble was like, I'm not having Miles Davis around my woman. It's not (laughs) happening. It's not going down like that. So, But we we stayed friends um, for years. So you were the original coffee shop chick. The coffee shop? What is that? That's what... What is that? That's the, the... the 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 Nubian goddess that we would think of had raps and since those are jazz ninety four yeah but she was neo soul me, before neo soul it was like me but I was yeah after you. it was Amir it was the post civil rights era it was say it loud I'm black and I'm yeah. proud so was that natural yeah it was that period of awakening with black folks when we were like. You know, no more. No more dogs biting us. No more. It it was past Montgomery and the boycotts where we were like, we recognize our economic power and our beauty and strength. We know whence we came from. But once the Nixon era sort of set in and, you know, the leaders were killed in 68, a lot of that just cools off. And, you know, the 70s was mad hedonism. Oh, I bet you. So how did you resist that? How did you resist it? It was. Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. That happened in the 70s. Mm-hmm. James Brown, um, all of that was the 70s. Okay. So this well, I'm is just saying it was also, rights. you know, my Uncle Butch who stole my grandmom's TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, a lot of work, but, but here we go. You had, playing, brothers, you had brothers coming back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay. They were distressed. Mm-hmm. And many of them came back with habits, Her- yeah. heroin. I mean, you know, so we right. were starting to deal with crack and all of that happening in our community. So so there was a lot going on. Were you discouraged at all with, as, I will say that Afrocentricity had its second wave, 86, 87, with the hip-hop generation. But was there a period between uh, 79, 80, uh, post-disco, between 80 and 85, where you just felt like, Oh, okay. We're we're done this, and now we're bourgeois. We're getting jobs. We're we're Upper perming our hair. No, uh, because ain't no, post, ain't no stopping, ain't no stopping us now. now. <laughs> like, yeah, no, because I, I recognize that we're not monolithic. We're mm-hmm. we're all we're we're shades and variations. We're not all one thing. So, and Deanna's always been this black. So <laughs> I know. I mean, Black Music Month started in the seventies, and it continues on. So that's a whole yeah. you know that's an, yeah another thing. 
No, we're not monolithic. So I saw all types of, some folks were bougie. Some were still wearing their hair natural. Some were wearing braids. It was a whole lot of stuff going on. Right, but I'm just saying that you are unapologetically black. Oh, and what else could I be? And But that's the thing, to for some people to kind of spook that sat by the door their way into society, they might have to change clothes a little bit. Nah. First of all, remember, so for me, I I, I talked about graduating from um, Frankie Crocker University, mm-hmm. but then I was greatly influenced by one of the blackest people I know, Kenny Gamble. <laughs> he was my man. Um, so I was raised up as a woman mm-hmm. by a strong black man. That's that was my education. And then again, my parents, my family, I'm very clear where I come from and who I am. Mm -hmm. And so and it was very black. And my mother, although she was Puerto Rican, she recognized that she's an African woman. First time I went to Africa, I went with my mama. We went to Senegal, um, to Ghana. And my mother disappeared one day and we were like, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Well, my mother went to the marketplace and got her garb. She got some sisters to me and she came back garbed up. Okay. And had several outfits. And my mother was like, yo, I'm an African woman. I know this. And that's the spirit in which I was raised. I was raised with a great deal of consciousness and exposure to black folks. So growing up in Harlem, for me, it was the Schomburg. It was Langston Hughes. It was the Negro Ensemble Company. It was all this great energy about blackness around me. Do you and think that's a little bit of a, some Northeast privilege when it comes to, to black folks in a way, too, to be able to continue that? Because I see what Amir is saying. And sometimes it depends on where you are, too, physically. But Possibly, yeah. yeah. I mean, because me and Fonte in- have that black conversation all the time about the difference between the South and the Northeast, and yeah. No, there are differences. We we're definitely, but I celebrate our commonalities. I recognize the differences, but uh, you know, I just came from a wellspring of black culture, growing up in Harlem, and the Bronx, the home of hip hop, of rap. So you know, for me, early. So let me tell you this too. Also, when I was a teenager, I met Roy Ayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met a woman named Myrna Williams who managed Roy Ayers. So I was 15 meeting Roy Ayers and hanging out with people like Roy Ayers. And and then uh, Jimmy Heath, who I mentioned to you. And then when I was about 17, a girlfriend of mine named Brenda introduced me to Stevie Wonder. So I met Stevie. I call him Stevelin. I met Stevelin before... I even got into radio, and he invited me into the studio. He was doing music of my mind. Wow. Yikes. Yeah, music of my mind. So uh, I was exposed. And then I mentioned the flute. I decided to take flute lessons because I still was trying to, <laughs> trying to develop my talent as a musician. Give me Bobby to blow. And yeah. No, no, I met Bobby. I met Bobby. But then I approached a gentleman to take flute lessons and his name is Hubert Laws one of the greatest flautist of all time Uh, I will tell you that I never got a flute lesson (laughs) (laughs) but he taught me a lot (laughs) 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 so I started dating Hubert Laws and as a result of that relationship I was exposed even greater to 
um, he would take me to Rudy Van Gelder's studio in Jersey. Oh, oh damn, Steve just died. And he was yeah. signed to CTI at the time. So who did Steve's I meet? About to Steve's done. For real? Yeah, that's my favorite. You yeah, love CTI, like, yeah. Cree Taylor. So I met Cree Taylor, Rudy Van Gelder, Hank Crawford, Esther Phillips, yeah. Grover Washington Jr., Freddie Hubbard. It's all kudu stuff. Right. Yeah. And they performed with each other. They recorded with each other. So I would go with Hubert to the sessions. But one of my favorite sessions, I think you can all appreciate this, is one day Hubert said he had a, a session and uh, he took me, deposited me in the control room. And who was in the control room? Quincy Jones and Donnie Hathaway. Wow. So it was my first time meeting Donnie. And Come Back Charleston, 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 Blue. Come back yeah. Charleston Blue is what they were recording. Wow. And Hubert was on that session. So I sat in the control room with them. And of course, at that point, I knew who Donnie was. Right. He was very shy, demure, quiet. And Quincy calls Aretha Franklin and introduces Donnie to Aretha wow. on the phone. And he tells Aretha, you got to hear him. You know, Donnie Hathaway. And of course, he was signed to Atlantic Records. Right. So, yeah. That so was at this pretty point heavy. in your life, these things aren't phasing you. Like, I'm young. I'm, I'm yeah, young. Like, this is I'm taking it all in. Righteous Forrest Gump. But right? you know what it did? <laughs> it, it set the, the bar for me. It set an appetite for me because what I have discovered over time is that I am most intrigued and attracted to the exceptional. Mm. And that's what I have had all of my life. I have been um, involved, friendships, romances, with people who are uh, supremely gifted, I would say, that's what I like. I really would <laughs> hate to hear your opinion on <laughs> life in 2019 <laughs> <laughs> and where music is going. So. Man. Well, I say never a dull moment. That's how I approach life daily. With human beings, there's seven billion of us, right, Fonte? We were talking about this yes. last night. Yes. But Sly and the Family Stone said... Everybody is a star. star. Everybody is a star. We all have our unique shine. We have our individuality. Um, we contribute to this energy that keeps our planet revolving around the sun. You and don't have to tell me. I'm Sugar Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you already know that, Sugar. And not for sugar, nothing, sugar. Deanna's already, you're already forced to listen to everything from 2018 yeah. and back because she's a media coach so when you mm. are yeah, I was going to say are you going to be Blueface's media coach she, she tried with Kodak Black you know it's yeah, like she I definitely walked out on Kodak Black yeah I was really? going to say yeah. that did not so work. what so how did it what was the situation well he was disrespectful you're still doing media coaching yes I, it, I, and I today? artist development yes can we, can we, can we talk about I, what that, is that all entails because okay. I don't think a lot of people know right, could you teach us question. I had this actually teach I had to do this okay yeah you just had media training didn't you I did I got media coached uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did they teach you not to hit yourself in the mouth with the microphone? <laughs> Sesame Street got you mediocre. Yeah, because I was, I was, I did this thing for NBC um, Sunday morning, and then immediately thereafter, they, they said, were like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> was like, oh wow!" They're like, "You need no, help. no." But they told me I did, the guy. He told me I did a good job, but um, it's a, it's a lot. It, it's it is. I'll it, be honest with you lot. guys. Uh, after episode ten. You went and got Sean G was like, nah, man, you, you said uh, too much like Obama. Yeah, I'm going to get right. you yeah, a you, you are, you are. 
so like there was there was actually a point back then when I was editing out all of the us. Wow, yeah. those are called and, fillers. I call those fillers. They're all part of natural conversation. Yeah, all but have I them. overdo it. Like, but yeah, an overuse of it is like, like all, all of us. And but you know what I'm saying? You interesting, because I mean? it's not a lot of media coaches. So I'm like, dang, who'd you get? Right, godmother? Because really, there's it's a handful of people who yeah, do what you do. It's a very do. niche part of the yeah. industry. But I, I do. I call it artist development, human development, with an emphasis on media. But for me, it's I get a lot of young artists. So I'm schooling them on what I feel are the rudiments of things they need to know. Please going tell out Kanye into story. the world. Teach us, Please teach us. Kanye. Kanye was one of your students. Oh, she had to lead that one too. Yeah, well, well, that was a, that was. I was approached by Lior Cohen. Called me directly after the Taylor Swift incident oh. Oh, and wow. asked okay. me. He said, "My friend needs help." Uh, can you meet with Kanye? This was months after he had already gone to Hawaii. He was recording. He came back and I met with him at his home in New York. And he really didn't. Well, first of all, I was approached to coach him when his first album was coming out and he didn't want any coaching. So, and I ran didn't. into him someplace and I said, I was supposed to coach you. He says, oh, I know how to handle the media. I know what to do. I got this. I don't need any, any, any. I was like, all due okay. respect, brother. I love your music. Peace and blessings. But later I went to his home and spent the afternoon with him and we talked about Taylor Swift. We talked about life in general. I, I took him a black obelisk and I gave that to him as a gift. And he was like, well, what is this? And I said, it's an obelisk and it's Egyptian and you'll see it in Rome and you'll see it in Europe and in South America, you'll see it everywhere, but it's Egyptian. I'm looking it up and right now. The obelisk? Yes. Okay. We all are. O-B-S-K. D.C. Okay. Washington Monument. Yeah. Oh, the obelisk. Yeah. Yes. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Phallic symbol. Now. It's a phallic. But we wound up not working together. He really did not want it. It was Lior who wanted it for him and felt that he needed it. But Kanye is the type of artist you don't. He's he's can't just, tell him. Yeah, nothing. you don't. <laughs> right. You don't, All right. So can you give us? What do I do coaches, when I'm coaching? Uh, could you uh, Ooh, teach she us? never does this, but I'm right. I hope you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because even now I still feel like a, an amateur in doing this. No. We're going to have to give her a check after we're done. You know that, right? <laughs> Thank you, I got it. manager. <laughs> appreciate that. No. Is it, is it's it, like, Amir, drum on my record for free. I do that. All, I never charge for drumming. Oh, for real? What? You shouldn't have said that on the air. Come on, son. <laughs> I literally don't. What do you? Well, is there something else you charge for walking in or? No, I mean when you. Cartage. I'm I'm at a place now where, you know, like drumming is my passion. DJing is my passion. Sean won't let me DJ for free, but like you know, if I like the person, I'll drum it and not think about it. Okay. I mean, what, am, what am I going to do with it? Two thousand bucks, like. Oh, God, that that right. sounded wow. very nice. Wow. So cool. Can you coach, can you coach him bucks. on how he could have fixed yeah. that statement? Yeah, yeah. That like, cool. yeah. 2000 bucks for the average person is a whole lot of money, Amir. Think like about it. Like for West Supreme. Yeah. I see what he's well, saying. Let's I also say that half of my salary in this show is going to the staff. So <laughs> don't but, act like But I'm, I get what you're saying. I like for you, that would not be a lot of money. But to the person that's giving it, it would be a lot. So it's like, yeah, I don't just keep your money. Yeah, I get what you're saying. But... So what would be a better way, Deanna, to clean that up? Not say it at all. <laughs> but it's already done. And see, Deanna worked with T.I. since the beginning, so I know you yeah. know how to clean after the fact as yeah. well. It's different with every artist. It's okay. different. I tailor, I have a, a program, I call it the Influence System, and 
It's influence, meaning the ability to prevail upon the thoughts and feelings of others. And that's what artists do. And I don't just work with artists. I've also worked with athletes like Allen Iverson, uh, heavyweight boxer Roy Jones Jr. I worked with executives. I worked with Michael Vick as well when he came out of prison. And that was T.I. called me one day and had Michael Vick on the phone and said, Deanna's my person, you need to get with Deanna. But Michael was not very happy when he came out of jail because everybody kept asking about the dog fighting. And and he was like, look, I just served two years in jail. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And I was like, Michael, let me bring you to reality. You will be talking about this for the rest, the rest of, of your, your life. life. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Even though you went to prison, this is part of your story now. And, you know, people are very attached to their dogs, uh, and you were involved White in a situation. People. White people. Well, yeah, let's, let's, I hate dogs. People. You're that's exceptional, okay, well, Bill. That's you know why that. you're on Quest Love. Exactly. 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 There you go. That's there why? Yeah. Shit. One of the many. So different people at Taylor. For instance, I'll give you the Little Kim story. So Little Kim was on the red carpet, and, and uh, Howard Stern asked her, what was it like to have sex with a big, fat, ugly guy, like big and small. Now, Kim is from Brooklyn. She would ask that question. She she just wanted to fight him, but she was on the red carpet. It was, I think, the MTV Music Awards. And so she kept it moving, but she was very upset, very angry. At this time, she was signed to Atlantic a little later, and they said, you have to do Howard Stern. This is when he was still doing terrestrial radio before Sirius XM. And Kim didn't want to do it. And they said, okay, we've got the perfect person to help prep you for the interview with Howard Stern. I went to the Trump Tower. She was getting her face beat at five in the morning. And we sat and worked on how to approach Howard, what to say, me anticipating the questions that he would ask her. And also, I protected her. I was like, "If we're not going to let him ask you about Biggie. You're going to bring up Biggie mm. before he does. Control so the narrative. Providing control the narrative and providing the strategy and how we were going to deal with that. So very early in the interview, she says to Howard, you know, you and Biggie would have been boys. I think y'all would have been friends. Hmm. And he says, really? Like, why? Why do you say that? And she said, because you have a big personality and so did Big. And I could see the two of you being boys. So at that point, she disarmed him. Yeah, Yeah, he did not say anything negative about him. And that was her concern because she was like, if he attacks my man one more time, we're going to be fighting up in that studio. And uh, she just took control of the interview and the narrative. And she just had Howard Stern purring (laughs) and in the palm of her hand. That's because we prepared for him. In fact, on that particular album, she had done a song where she shouted him out and she said, Howard, you paved the way for me as an artist who deals with sexual issues. Mm. You paved the way with your fights with the FCC, talking about sex, all of that. So, Howard, thank you. Got wow. it. So, all wow. of that was part of how <laughs> we prepped. And when we left, I was in the green room. Kim came in, hugged me, high five. She was happy with the results. Atlantic was happy. She was pleased. Howard also. So, yeah. So it depends. When Charlie Wilson came out of uh, rehab, I worked with him on how to talk about the rehab experience and his his path moving forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usher, I only worked with him on 
he wanted to talk about being dyslexic. He had never discussed it publicly. I didn't even know that. Right. Yeah, he didn't talk about that Yeah, he didn't talk about Yeah, and that's what we worked on. He was a big star at the point where I worked with him. So it varies, but I also work with new up-and-coming emerging artists and they don't know anything about how to go to radio, mm-hmm. how to go to television. They don't know. They know how to create. They know how to perform. But oftentimes they can't talk about what they do. So back to your question, there was a woman at Motown named Mrs. Powell, Mrs. Maxine yes. Powell. Yes. She did the artist development at Motown. Motown and it was Barry school. Gordy. Right. Barry Gordy's sisters recommended her because she had an etiquette charm school in Detroit and uh, prepared people to be models and what have you. But remember, many of the artists that Barry Gordy signed out of Motown came straight from the hood, from the projects, Mm -hmm. and they didn't know which fork to use. They didn't have any idea of what to expect, especially with Barry taking them all over the world. So Mrs. Powell prepped them. So I consider her the mother of artist development and coaching. And then Suzanne DePass came in later and took over from Mrs. Powell, and she worked on prepping the Jackson 5 specifically. So I also credit Suzanne DePass as being uh, another mother of artist development. So I studied everything that they did. Who do you you feel your greatest student was? Hmm. Or is? Or most improved. I'm really impressed with... Yeah, that's where you guys' vocabulary from. I was about to say, I'm very... (laughs) I'm very impressed with T.I. Yeah. Yeah. So. Tip. But I give Tip a lot of credit. I mean, he we worked together for eight years. Anytime he released a record, anytime he did a book, a film, TV show, whatever, he would call me. I'd go to Atlanta to his home. We would lock up or I'd go on the road wherever he was and we would sit, lock up, talk um, and just what I do. What I did with Tip is I would give him language and thoughts I would let him talk to me first, express how he felt about whatever it was, the music, the book, the film, and then I would give him some language and ways to discuss what he had done, what you, he was you're, doing. You're also proud of the Dave Matthews work too, right? But I didn't work with Dave. I worked with the band. Okay. I worked with the, the rest of the band. They talk. Not work. <laughs> yes, they do talk. And this was in preparation oh, for um, the Sunday morning show that you mm-hmm. did, CBS Sunday morning. They were doing a special. One of their members had died in a tragic oh, accident. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? Mm-hmm. They did not know how to talk about the passing of their member. Okay. Even with each other, they had not discussed... Wow the death with each other. So when I came in, I met with the members individually and then collectively. Um, So, yeah. So it varies. What Um, is something that you would say to an artist that is an absolutely, like, talking do's and don'ts of interviewing or whatever? What are some things that you would say to artists, like, okay, absolutely, like, do not do this? Yeah, don't be on your phone. Don't be disrespectful. Don't make, um, do not not make eye contact. First of all, I encourage my clients to do their homework, just like I did with you guys. I read up on you individually. Oh, uh -oh. Oh, no. What did you find on me? A little more insight. (laughs) You know, I'm scared. Uh oh. No, nothing to be scared of. (laughs) But, you know, you do your homework. That's the beginning, and that's the first tenet that I teach is preparation. So do your homework. Know where you're going, know who you're speaking with. Uh, listen to what they've done. If they're a print journalist, read something they've written. So I give them basic human etiquette and respect. 
So how do you, do you pretty much prepare for your first meeting with a client the same way you do, you do your research, you know, find out everything, you watch old interviews? Mm-hmm. It's like, do you come up with like a list of, you know, I saw this interview, I didn't like what you said here. You yeah, said I'll that. sit with them. It depends on how many interviews they've done. Some artists I'll sit, for instance, Bow Wow. Bow Wow started, as you know, as a That's teenager. Chad Moss, Chad Moss <laughs> right. right. He started as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And by the time um, his mother, who was his manager and his publicist, Patty Webster at the time, brought me in, he was angry with Jermaine Dupri. Okay. And he every interview that he was oh. doing, he was hostile, angry, upset. And so they brought me in to calm him down and to give him a way to express his disappointment and his love for Jermaine. So initially he was like, I don't need, I'm a star. I don't need any coaching. The very first time I went to his home and he wasn't, he just wasn't in the frame of mind. So I won't work with someone if they're not um, willing, if they're not open to the process. And so um, I left. However, the next time I saw him was up at the Sony building. And when I got off the elevator. He was standing there and he ran away. I never had a man run away from me. (laughs) But when he came back, I said, give me 15 minutes, 15 minutes, and then you can leave. And I had ordered all of his interviews and we sat and watched his interviews. And I said, all we're going to do today is count how many times you say, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? And how, then we can. How leave. do you get us to stop saying yeah, that? Yeah. Watch a video of yourself. There you go. There <laughs> you Seriously, go. Seriously, because when I did the media training, he made me watch me. He filmed me having an interview with this guy, and then we watched it. And it's really uncomfortable. It's hard. So uncomfortable. It's hard. And it's really hard to watch yourself. Yeah. And then you stop. Because I kept on, like, not dropping my eyes and, like, playing with my hands and looking like an idiot. And I was like, oh, I look like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So watching Great. yourself, hearing yourself, you're absolutely correct. Yeah allows you to, but Rome wasn't built in a day. So you don't change overnight, but mindfulness, being aware of your tics, of your body language, of your lack of eye contact, whatever it is. So studying it, if you really applying yourself will help. So that day we watched, I said, just count. That's all I want you to do is count how many times you say, you know what I mean, you know what I'm saying. And of course, when he counted up to about 50 after watching all of these <laughs> things. Okay, and that was up. just 15 minutes. That was right. That was <laughs> just 15 minutes. He turns around and says, okay, Deanna, help me. He recognized at that point that he had a problem and an issue, and he was amenable to the process. I thought he just had affirmation so. issues. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Or some validation. Yeah. I, I got another question. Yes. How did you get into doing this? Well, my background is radio. As I said, I started in radio oh, so you've in the heard, 70s. You've, you've done so many well, bad interviews. Why? A lot of interviews. What was well, the moment, why? though? Yeah. Is it because rappers are known as well, not I don't too just eloquent? Do rappers. And... I've, I've worked with heavy metal artists. I've worked with pop artists. I mean, okay. I worked with Justin Bieber on his first album. I worked with Rihanna on her very first album. So I've worked with artists in all genres. Um, yeah, because we Mary. all need help. Yeah, we all need help. I mean, we all need help. Do you have a company or is it just you? Influence Entertainment is my company. And it is me. I am the one that does the coaching. People are hiring me for my expertise and my ability and my success getting people to be better. Uh, I am about inspiration. I am constantly drawing inspiration everywhere. And I like helping people be their best because that's what I aspire to be. But to follow up on what Bill said, 
what was the moment though, Godmother? Because even I don't know when you were like, I'm going okay. to do this. All right. So I was managing an artist named Gary Taylor. He's a songwriter. Oh, yeah. Producer. yeah. He wrote uh, yeah. The Whispers, Just Get Better Just Time. Just Gets Better With Time. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. I was managing uh, Asshole Gary uh, <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> So it doesn't get better with time. It gets worse. The shit gets worse. The age and worse. The fact that in the coolest manner, you she said went, asshole you Gary. Went low. Yeah. 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 I'm just being factual, actual. Wow. That's all. Yeah, I love no, you. Can I, we hang just, out? Yes, I love you absolutely. like a lot. You're like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to like, be around you. I'm like, I want to be your friend too. So. Okay, we can work You on were going to officiate yeah. the... Anyway, uh, Yeah, no, that's right. I offered to she officiate your wedding. I've wow. officiated two weddings. Wait, what? So, yeah. No, 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 no. Well, well, if when, ever when the time comes. Happens. Yeah, the if time and when the time comes. I'm not getting married. Everybody yes. relax. Hey, okay. man, we were on, calling man. it a ride or die ceremony, not to get married. Oh, a ride or die ceremony. We've both been married before, and she was going to officiate our ride or die ceremony. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So where were we? Um, help me. Asshole Although, you know, I will tell you, so I managed him and I got dragged into managing. I, I don't like management. It's just not I my skill set. It's not where Because you did Carol Riddick too. I, I managed Carol Riddick as well, yeah. Philadelphia's own Carol Riddick. But with Gary, it was just hard talking with him. In fact, we were in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the back of his limousine. Uh, on a promo tour, we couldn't afford a road manager. Road manager, so I went out with him, and he was so difficult the entire trip. And I said to him, "You know, Gary, you write these great love songs, but part of your problem is you you need good love. You need some loving. You need somebody to. You really do because you're lacking." And you're an asshole. Yeah, and you're an asshole. <laughs> and you're an asshole. And you know how he goes to the record label, says, I don't want to work with her anymore. She reminds me of my ex-wife. All kind of nasty, <laughs> negative stuff. Jesus. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to work with you either. And furthermore, here's the number for not a psychologist, but a psychiatrist. <laughs> Nigga, you need okay? medicine. You need medical. <laughs> medical, right. You need medicine. And then my partner at the time plays a tape for me. Gary sent this to you. He wants to make up and she puts a cassette in the car and it's anita baker good love wow and he wrote the song inspired by me telling him because in the song he says i want to know what good love feels like good love good love love. morning noon and night so yeah gary taylor but he was signed to Virgin Music. It was I'm sorry, Virgin, yes. And the woman who was the head of the black music division, Sharon Haywood. Why do I know that? I know she that put him up too. with Layla, right? It was, yes, yes. I think that was, Damn, I think that was the connection there. <laughs> Fonte the knows. <laughs> yeah, he knows. The encyclopedia. Sharon Haywood takes me to lunch one day and she says, this is after the, the Gary Taylor debacle. She says, you get along with artists, you overstand them. Well, I use the word overstand. She said, you get them, they get you. You should do artist development. I had never considered it until that day when Sharon says to me, you should do that. And I was like, hmm. My first job, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Wow. wow. I worked what? with a group called Solo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That they was the very first. Where do you want yeah. me to play? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, get it on. so Jimmy and Terry. <laughs> my we, second we sing Cupid next? vertical right, hole. Right. Vertical hole was okay. my second. Yeah. Angie, Angie Crazy Angie Stone. Stone. Yeah. And uh, my third was D'Angelo. Wow. I coached D'Angelo. He was my third artist, and he remains to this day my most precious person. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So that's how it started 25 years ago. Wow. 
So I've been coaching 25 years. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Wait, we didn't even bring up the origins of black music. <laughs> right. We're at the end We skipped the 70s, huh? but we went in the 70s let's, and then we left. Let's go back in time. Okay. So you are the proprietor, the inventor of Black Music Month? Uh, Gamble. Okay. Ed Wright, myself. So... Why did you feel that it was necessary? And when when was it first officiated or 19, started? 1978, 9. We went to the White House. We petitioned the White House to President Jimmy Carter was in the House White Thank House the at Lord. that time. A yes. huge black music fan. Jimmy yes. <laughs> yeah. For real, Georgia, Georgia Farmer. And so um, Gamble had gone to Nashville and was very impressed with Music City. And the power of the CMA and what they were doing, they literally had established a geographic region and made music the core of what was going on there. So he said, we need to do that in the black music industry. So that was the beginning of the BMA, the Black Music Association. And part of that endeavor was to have a period of time where we celebrate the outstanding contributions of people in the past, this generation, and ones coming up so it was really gamble's brainchild and then you know we were together at the time i think we were on baby number two we'd been together for years and uh, there were local chapters established around the country but what happened was some years later when i was producing i am that you referenced earlier mir the international association of african-american music which was um it is a non Uh, um, a non-membership advocacy organization dedicated to the preservation promotion of black music worldwide. So 
uh, I wrote President Bill Clinton asking him to host a reception very similar to what Jimmy Carter had done on the White House lawn, where we had Evelyn King and tons of people. I wanted you to break down that day. Your that father day took <laughs> some historic photos, yeah. uh, Ron St. Clair. Who performed that day? Um, uh, Evelyn Champagne King, uh, Chuck, Chuck Berry. Yeah. Chuck Berry was there as oh, well. Wow. Joe yeah. Williams was there. It was an interesting <laughs> crowd. Was who in, in music. I felt so much. Joe Williams? Like, really? Like, really? Cosby showed Joe Williams. Like, really? <laughs> Well, no. not the jazz, jazz, the jazz singer, musician. The jazz well, I mean, he was yeah. he, he, he was on Cosby Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Claire's like, father. Yeah. Yeah, fast he forward. Came on singing peaches. Yeah, yeah that's what I was like. It's got to be the same guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I went to Clinton. I wrote the White House and asked them to hold a similar reception, and they said, "Well, we see where Jimmy Carter held this reception back in the '70s, but he did not sign a presidential proclamation. Oh. So just go get some legislation, come back to us, and we'll do stuff in the White House and recognize June Black Music Month." So it took me a few years. Uh, I had Senator. Arlen Specter, who was a Republican from Pennsylvania. I had Congressman Shaka Fatah. I literally put my most comfortable pair of shoes, not these Manolos, and walked around. around Capitol Hill and petitioned and begged and you know, brought statistics about the power of black music, that we're a multi-billion dollar entity, not just feel good. <laughs> you know, it's a business. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an economy. And uh, took a few years, but we got legislation passed saying June is Black, black Music, music Month. Month. And then I went wow. back to the White House. And at that point, I had several private meetings in the Oval Office with Bill Clinton and took delegations of people in the industry, artists as well as executives, okay, to the White House. And so, yeah. So Gamble and I, and we worked together. Mm -hmm. Even after we separated, we are partners in life. We have three kids. We have a grandson. He's the head of my family, the love <laughs> of my life. And um, this was part of our mission and our work. We are about making people aware of black music and its potency, not just economically, but how it informs everything and everybody. Change your life. One change mine. Yeah, how about yeah. that? Can I, one thing I wanted to ask you uh, about yes. uh, was uh, in regards to Unsung, because that was how I first mm. came about mm. your work. And I told you about it uh, when we were speaking last night, how... I just kept seeing you pop up in every unsung. And I was like, wow, Ooh. I got to figure out who she is. The unsung <laughs> she, lady. Yeah, she was the unsung lady. That was really what I was like, oh, yeah, that's the unsung lady. So when we first met at uh, World Cafe Live, it was after, I think it was after the Foreign Exchange show. Yes. And Nick brought you backstage. I was like, oh, it's the unsung lady. Oh, shit. So one Nick thing. Nick brought her backstage? Yeah, Nicolette brought wow. her backstage. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so that's even crazy. One thing in every unsung, like every. <laughs> Every storyline in Unsung and is then hip -hop and then hip-hop. Like, <laughs> they were doing so great and then hip-hop. Right. So what were your personal feelings and um, when rap started you know, dominating, uh, what was your personal feelings on, on rap music and how did you make that transition? Whereas maybe some of your other peers were just like, ah, this is, this is bullshit. You seem, just from you know, our conversations, you seem to be really open to not just working with rappers, but also just really embracing the culture and, um, you know, and accepting it. So what was that like for you? I grew up in the boogie down Bronx. <laughs> I come from where rap music was born. Yeah. And furthermore, 
uh, growing up in the late 60s, 70s in New York, in Harlem, who did I hear? I heard The Last Poets. Mm-hmm. I heard The Last Poets. And for folks who are not up on The Last Poets, listen to them and you will hear the seeds, yeah. the beginnings. Um, Nikki Giovanni, uh, the, that's what I grew up on in addition to hearing rap mm-hmm. in the Bronx. And then, of course, the Sugar Hill Gang. That was revolutionary. So I embraced it. And as it evolved, as, as, as a rap evolved i kept up with it and a lot of the people that i worked with in the industry they came out of rap they came out of that so it was never difficult for me and as far as unsung is concerned it started in 2008 the first season was the the donny hathaway phyllis hyman the clark sisters i I didn't do the clark sisters but i did the other ones well first of all i knew phyllis hyman I had met Donny Hathaway. I played his music from the beginning of him releasing music. So oftentimes in these stories that are shared on Unsung, I have firsthand knowledge of these people and I'm able, and, and many of them, my friends. Phyllis Hyman you know? was there. Demiri, she was there the year you uh, interned at I Am. Do you remember that? Do you remember seeing Phyllis Hyman walking around? Uh, I remember, yes, that was 91, yeah, I believe. Yeah, 91 is when we did the first I Am yeah. celebration. Yeah. What were your remembrances? What are your recollections of me in 91, Amir? Doing um, I Am, because I was frantic trying to, trying <laughs> yeah, to keep see, everything I, together. I learned early I, I, well, now I kind of make the um, – I always use the, the Ray Kroc, Ronald McDonald example of Ray Kroc is the, the power behind the, the, the movement, whereas people know Ronald McDonald and think that he runs McDonald's, but it's really the person in power. So I knew you were the person in power, and I've just always been one to observe from afar. So – I was about to say, this is probably the most we've ever been in a room together mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking in our decades history. So usually I... Why I mean, is no, that, Amir? Huh? Why is that? <laughs> Call him to the floor. Oh, hands down. You scared the shit out of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it funky. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I study people... I'm I'm getting uh, uh, truth be told I'm I'm working on that. Um I'm so insular and in my shell that I don't even with Stevie one I mean they're they're luminaries who like hey let's go out to dinner let's hang and I'm like oh, I'm cool I'm cool I'm, I've been that way for a long time I'm just slowly getting out of that 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 Rapunzel protective phase of my life so um, but no, back then I, I used it for everything it was worth. I mean, I made, I think that was the day that I became friends with Chuck and Hank, um, uh, Chuck D and Hank Shockley of, um, Public Enemy, a Public Enemy. And I am? Yeah. Oh, really? I, I oh, I was not working my ass off. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I, mean, you, I tried to explain that because Amir, you like what well, every year of I am, you like evolved and matriculated. Like you was intern one year, then I remember you did like the showcase another year. You went the roots, yeah, and then the next much. year you did a tribute to like Jazzy Jeff or something. Yeah, like. that, do you remember it, when when I had the roots at the Kennedy Center? Do you remember? Yes, that? I remember that was speaking to a group. You performed and talked to a group of kids. I think that was the Public Enemy uh, performance thing. Yes, I remember all four of my I ams. Okay. They were crucial. I will say probably the greatest night of my life 
Like, like, I, met me. Okay, I've seen. I've there seen, you go. <laughs> go, Laia. Laia said, and where did you meet? Where did you meet in my suite? In your, in your penthouse suite? In, in my line, suite. Stevie, Stevie Wonder was on the piano. Yes. It was post an event that I honored him I, and I several I was going to say, people. that was probably the first magical night for for a career at that point where it was sort of like, uh, I don't belong in the room, that sort of thing. That was <laughs> That was a moment where... The best part of that night was um, sitting with Andre Fisher, mm. uh, drummer of Rufus, Rufus and uh, yeah. married and to then, later Natalie Cole. He was yeah. there with Natalie that yeah. night. Yeah. So I sat. I basically had my first Quest Love Supreme with Andre Fisher <laughs> right, right. and and Natalie Cole, while Stevie Wonder is just casually going through his cavalcade of hits. Mm. Uh, He's got a few of them in the in the in One the piano two. in mm-hmm. the suite. It was like. Three hours, like to the point where you go yeah. walk away, like, yeah, he's doing uh, uh-huh. creeping. Let me go sit down. <laughs> <laughs> when I come back, maybe he'll be on the Sir Duke. Yeah. And I think we should explain. I am. I did. I produced an, an annual music celebration, a conference that had panels, luncheons, mm-hmm. and uh, gala. A gala where we honored everybody from Little Jimmy Scott to Shaka Khan, Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder. Babyface, L.A. Reid, new edition, new edition, tons of people, and this went on for sixteen years. I gotta ask, okay, mm-hmm. how hard is it to organize? Because mm-hmm. I I don't feel like you're the per I don't feel like you're the Ray Kroc in the position of they got this. I feel like you're hands on. You talk to people. I mean, you talk to us, and we were not through. You know, mm-hmm. like then. So I felt as though you had your imprint on literally every aspect of from from the mm-hmm. the smallest uh, uh, talking session to the networking part of the night to the big gala dinner. How hard was it to manage, micromanage, whatever? How hard was it to organize that event? It was challenging, but I also had a lot of energy and again the passion and commitment to preserve and promote our music. And like you said, I, I wasn't even aware that Hank Shockley was there. I mean, there was so, everybody came. Yeah. Teddy Riley, every, Jimmy Castor, everybody wow. came. It was just the magnet for artists. And again, because of me being on the radio, one. Mm-hmm. Two, because of my relationship with Gamble. Uh, three, my partner at the time also had a lot of relationships. So it, it facilitated. And I'm a passionate letter writer. I'm a letter-writing motherfucker, okay? (laughs) Uh, So my letters, just, again, the passion that I have for our culture and music. So I got all those people. I paid no one. All the years that people came in and did tributes, I did not pay anybody a dime. So is it important to remember names and make connections? Sure, absolutely that's it's you know this it's a relationship business think of all of us it's all about your relationships and how you connect with people it's a give and take so relationships can get you places sometimes where even money can't absolutely (laughs) at the end of the day is how you feel about another person you don't want to fuck with somebody it don't even matter the check don't is some good so with for instance with the roots i mean you know i and you know rich was a tough one Mm. but i went passionately and I thought you guys were very 
talented. I recognize that's the other thing. I have a good ear and eye for talent. Back to M. Tume, who I know that you guys have had on the show. Mm-hmm. M. Tume introduced me to Spike Lee. We were at a party in Brooklyn. He had just finished shooting She's Gotta Have It. Wow. Just finished. And I met Spike, and I love cinema. So immediately I was interested in his film and him. And that's when we started developing our friendship. And then at one point he's like, you and Stevie Wonder are friends. I was like, yeah. He said, I would love to meet Stevie. You hooked him up? He wrote about it in his books. I introduced Spike Lee to Stevie Wonder. I wrote Stevie and I said, I called him. I said, Stevelin, talented filmmaker. I think he is going to be one of the most brilliant directors of our time. And, of course, that has come to pass. So, yes, I'm very proud of that introduction. So you are a bridge. What other bridge connections have you? Many, 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 many. Really? I mean, I'm, I want, I just, I like us connecting. I like us being productive from the energy that we create. I love that. And like I said, I think what makes me a great artist development coach is that I'm interested in seeing people reach their maximum potential. Uh, so, so a lot of connections. I mean, I feel, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I am attracted to the gifted. I am at- attracted to the talented 10th. I'm attracted to people who are exceptional. And I have been blessed to have had relationships with these people uh, through the course of my experience. And it feeds me. It gives me the energy to propel me further to help others. I believe I was put on this planet to inspire. I'm a muse. I'm real clear on real life, um, yeah. what, what I am. I am a muse. Name those songs. Yeah, I was going to say, name the songs. Name them songs, guys. What you say? Somebody say, darling, darling, baby. What that say? Well, I've been told that that was written for me. Hey, um, the OJ's no. The OJ's version of yeah. the big pun. Not the big pun. Right <laughs> <laughs> That's the version that we know. <laughs> I like that version too. I, I, I'm not a player. Not a player. I just yeah, crush a lot. I like just crush a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of songs. I mean, George Cables wrote Ebony Moonbeams. He's a piano player. And he, I, I was told that he heard my song, my, um, my show and wrote it. And then Bobby Hutchison recorded yeah. um, Ebony Moonbeams. And then Freddie Hubbard, who was a friend, recorded Ebony Moonbeams. So, uh, yeah. So, so where's that name, Ebony you. Moonbeams, come from? I was walking down the street in New York. I was starting a TV show while I was at City College in New York. I went in as a major, had to change that real quick, I told you, because that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And I saw a spotlight going through the moon, and I needed a name for my show. And I was like, ooh, there's a moonbeam. And everything at that time was black, right? Ebony. So I just put Ebony Moonbeams together, and that was the birth of my radio handle while I was in D.C. And it's just kind of followed me all my life. In fact, Gamble calls me Moonbeams to this day. So that's kind of like his name for me. But yeah, and, and you know, I always wanted, and I've met presidents and leaders and all manner of celebrity and people, but the person that I wanted to meet the most was Gordon Parks. Uh, As a young girl, I saw an exhibition called Harlem on My Mind at the Metropolitan Museum. Mm -hmm. And that just, I saw the photographs of Gordon Parks for the first time and James Vanderzee. And I just became totally enamored with their narrative and how they documented not just black people, but people, period. And so for me, my mission became meeting Gordon Parks. And I spent uh, an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who I knew, who could introduce me to him, and <laughs> what have you. And I was not very successful It should until... be noted you gave me a Gordon Parks 
I sure book did. for my uh, yes, apartment. Thank yes, you. absolutely. For my collection. I absolutely. Did but you ever again, get to meet him? Well, <laughs> again, I told you I'm a passionate letter writer. Did you? Yes. <laughs> I kept writing him. I kept writing until one day he had a vicious gatekeeper. Her name is uh, Joanna Fiora, Fiori. She is a photographer, but she was his assistant as well. And she was like, well, Mr. Parks is busy. Mr. Parks is sick. Mr. It was always an excuse. And then finally one day, because I never stopped writing him, kept writing him, telling him how his photography, his art, uh, for many who do not know, Gordon Parks directed Chaff. Mm-hmm. Um, the Learning Tree. The Learning Tree. He's uh, He was a great director in addition to being a fabulous photographer and a writer and then one day I got the call Mr. Parks would like to invite you to his home for lunch and so needless to say the day he opened the door and I saw him I just is pinching myself and we was became, he wearing a white button down and some jeans he sure was mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. he sure was his shirt was kind of open really he was just looking <laughs> real sexy and but we became really good friends to the point where the day of his memorial service I went and his daughter came over to me and said, you know, my father spoke very fondly of you. And that meant everything to me because he was very dear to me. We were very, very close friends. Gordon Parks, uh, hip hop historians, uh, you Mm. should note that Gordon Parks shot shot the uh, the -hmm. Great Day in Harlem. Yes. Um, Did he shoot y'all remix? No. No. The Double XL XL remix? Yeah, he shot that. Wow. That was the Double XL one too? He did? Yeah. That was... Nice. That was his his shot. Um, it was really weird. Like it, it was that day, September twenty eighth, nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, the whatever Equimini Day, Equimini, Hard Night Life, Hard Night Black Star, Black Star, yeah, and Club. Love Movement. Try yeah. like that day was such a surreal day in hip hop history, and he just stayed. He first of all, um, I think the camera at the time, Sheena uh, Lester was still uh editor editor at at double xl so you know i again uh you want to meet mr no i just want to watch him so i just like (laughs) watched him from afar and it was so chaotic that day because that was really the day that classic hip-hop and kind of current hip-hop was meeting for the first time Mm -hmm. so you're watching like rock him Rakim losing over Tariq was one of the weirdest things in my life ever seen. And like the locks meeting, like all these Grandmaster Flash and all them. But he just stood there so cool and behind uh, a camera that was easily, I forget, I I forget what brand it was. Leica. Leica. That's what I was just about to say. A Leica. Yeah. It it was a 71. Mm-hmm. I believe a, a large 71. format. Yeah. Camera. And uh, he just he took eight shots, and wow. then coolly walked. He packed his things and walked off in the <laughs> sunset. <laughs> yeah, he was one of the most humble people that I ever met. For being put him in Who the genius was. category yeah. for real. I mean, he he could play the piano. He did he did orchestrations, uh, wrote symphonies. Wrote what was it books. about his work that attracted you? Because and what particular area? Because he did well, so many things. Photography. Yeah. Again, I saw Harlem on my mind as a young girl. The photographs captured what I what I knew, what I had, could relate to, seeing our people. Uh, I just think he had a tremendous eye for capturing the pain, the sorrow, the the love, the tenderness, all of that. I just got from him. It was just so black, <laughs> it you know, was just, just so, so black. black. 
And uh, so, yeah. One question um, I had uh, going back to just your artist development work. Mm-hmm. How in 2019 with Twitter, Whew. how do you manage that? It being a time where artists can literally, I can be three o'clock in the morning, drunk off my ass, not at home you. in my not me personally because I ain't I gonna get drunk. I know. <laughs> well, let me be quick. Let me be quick. I ain't gonna get drunk and go on Twitter. Let's say that. There you go. <laughs> but um, but you know where people can artists can literally can get canceled. Say what they want and get canceled with no filter, and there's a direct line from them to the rest of the world. How do you manage that in 2019? And yeah. what is your advice to to artists in this era where one tweet can get your show Take you yanked, down. the fuck out of here. Yeah. I, I review my clients' Twitter, their social media before I work with them and I'll go in uh, very early and say to them, you need to stay off of social media. <laughs> uh, I had to do that with Nikki Gilbert. She was doing the show RBD. Oh, yeah, Divas, from uh, Brownstone. And yeah. she was fighting with everybody. It was a constant fight in her social media. And I said, you need to stay off um, social media, 30 days. That's all I'm asking. Stay off. Mm. And she she later told me, she said, thank you for that. You saved my life. Because mm. she was so stressed out fighting with people and bickering and arguing. So I'll review. Some people are really good with their social media, but I warn them and I tell them, you're, as you just said, Fonte, you can ruin your career in one tweet. So when you write it, look at it. I've had to do that many, many times, haven't you? Yes. Where you write uh, something, and you're like, mm, what are the what are the implications or consequences? Then you end up this? not hitting send. That's what mm-hmm. I, right. That's why I don't and then just delete that yeah. shit. Yeah. So yeah. my drafts you know? is crazy. Yeah, right. Wow. Wow. Now we gonna put that Speaking of 2019, that's where we are. I was gonna ask you about being in a Me Too era. Uh, current Joe Biden era where you have relationships with men of of all different kind of eras and for women I was going to ask you advice on that because especially post Joe Biden where we're trying to figure out uh, what's appropriate yes yes and you've been through it all because you know men are men you have to gauge and and check people if you are not that person that likes a hug just extend your hand be real clear this is not a hug this is a handshake um, you know, your body language tells volumes, speaks volumes mm-hmm. about, you know, you can set um, boundaries with people and you have to do that sometimes. But sometimes people do not respect the boundaries right. and they'll come in for a hug. And if you don't want it at that point, you just have to, you know, you have to speak up and be very honest. You just cannot if you feel that you're being offended or people are doing something that is disturbing to you. Hey, the closed mouth does not get yeah. fed. You, you, you got to speak up. Yeah, and I feel like you yeah, assume they're going to get the point. Yeah, yeah, you have to let them know too, because you can't assume that a you can't assume they know, and then b I think it's unfair to assume that they're doing it with bad intentions. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like if someone comes in for a hug and you're not with it, you yeah. I, I feel like you just have to say that because exactly speak you know, up. Like yeah. today, you know, when I arrived at the studio, Fonte gave me a hug that I did not want to release. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean that was I didn't know know to do who that. does not want that kind of hug? <laughs> I mean, you feel like you're being hugged. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I accepted it. You should. well yeah. played. I accepted it. Lay Plume. Lay Plume. Oh, you know Lay Plume? 
Only certain people know that they know it, I can't place it. I can't uh, and place Boomerang, it. when Boomerang, the yeah. French guy hugs yes, Eddie Murphy, yes, yes, he's yes, like, hey, 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 hey,
I just watched. I mean, because I watched it, and mm-hmm. I mean, I like. Well, be it, honest, but you know, I oh, didn't I, know him nothing less. the way you knew yeah. him. So, what I, was your take? I watched it. I think I should give you context. I watched it with his widow, Joan Pendergrass, oh, who is. No. A dear friend. I watched it with uh, Olivia Lynchenstein, who is the director, her associate, Tyrese, and uh, the sister who runs his company, and Charlie Mack. We had a private screening before Tyrese the public. Is playing Teddy. Tyrese, is that still happening? He yes, loves absolutely. Teddy Pendergrass. Well, he was like a son to Teddy, and okay. Teddy handpicked him. Oh. Charlie Mack is the one who approached Teddy and said, "Need to do your biopic," and he introduced Tyrese to Teddy. Tyrese slept in the room in the hospital. Teddy was in the hospital nine months in intensive care before his passing. Tyrese came from California, slept in the room with him. I will forever love him for his devotion, his dedication to Teddy. It was more than a movie. They developed a very strong bond, and Teddy gave his blessings to have Tyrese portray him in the uh, biopic, which is now officially Daniels is directing. But I, back to the documentary, I watched it and uh, I was extremely happy to hear my friend's voice, to see him when he was able-bodied, walking, all of that. I, there was footage that I had never previously seen, but at the end of the day, I read Olivia at the end of the documentary. I felt very disrespected for my ex, Kenny Gamble, I felt that Shep Gordon made comments suggesting that Gamble and Huff abandoned Teddy, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Teddy did not think he could sing anymore. Teddy didn't want to live. Teddy wanted to commit suicide. So when Gamble and Huff severed their relationship, recording-wise with Teddy, what, what? The man was on the edge of life and didn't think he could sing. So that's what happened. But the way Shep was representing it and the way she was representing, I also didn't like the amount of time they spent on the Taz Lang murder. Okay. That was bothering, bothersome uh, because Teddy. It left it wide open. Yeah, yeah but there was a lot of us were sort of like. Hmm. A little inference yeah. here that Teddy was involved uh, or who, who had the most to gain from her death. So what were your feelings on, on, um, Sonny Hobson's comments about same thing, same thing. Sonny's been running around for years making allegations and innuendos or suggestions that Teddy was involved in that. So of course I have problems with that as well. Okay. And, uh, so, you know, I let her know. And Joan Pendergrass opened up her husband's archives to Olivia they made three separate trips to Boston, which is where Teddy's widow lives, where she opened up the archives. So it was nice to hear Teddy's voice because he pretty much guided the documentary. He narrated it because he, she had access to those tapes. She did not mention Joan. She interviewed Joan, but decided to exclude reference to Joan. And meanwhile... I saw, I didn't know all of Teddy's girlfriends, but I knew the main ones. <laughs> and I saw a bunch of random chicks up in that documentary that Joan never knew of. I didn't know anything about. It was crazy. So at the end of the day, it had value because it did tell some of his story. But I felt disrespected because of how she treated Joan and um, the inferences or suggestions that um, Teddy was involved in Taz's murder and that Gamble and Huff abandoned Teddy. Gamble helped pay for Teddy's funeral. Gamble went to the hospital. I would bump into Gamble with our children 
in Bryn Mawr Hospital. I never once saw Sheb Gordon, nor did I ever see Danny Marcus in the hospital. However, Danny knew how to find his way to a telephone to ask Joan when Teddy died, could he represent the estate? The same person. Danny Marcus is. Danny Marcus was manager, a manager of um, with Shep Gordon of Teddy. Okay, okay. Yeah. And when Teddy needed financial help and went to Danny, mm, but when he died, <laughs> they wanted to be in control of the estate. I have problems with those people. And I'm happy to have this opportunity to go on the record and say, again, parts of the documentary had value and were good. And then uh, the parts just negated a lot of it to me. And with Joan, I told the director, I said, you could have chironed at the end because they they chironed at the end of the film uh, that Teddy went on to have four gold albums. Mm -hmm. But not only did Teddy go on to have four albums, he got his GED, he went to Drexel University, he fell in love again, and he he married Joan. Yes, sir. He went to college? He went to college. Mm -hmm. He did not graduate, but he attended Drexel University. Yeah. She could have Chiron that. And he established a foundation to help other um, paralegics and quads. He was a quadriplegic. So I just felt like, you know, she said, oh, we decided to end it at Live Aid. By the way, I went with him that day to Live Aid. Um, that was his first public performance right. post his accident. He was terrified, but he got through it. So I encourage people to still see the doc, but at the same time, you know, now you're hearing my notes. There's a lot of behind the scenes. Wait, can I ask you real yes. quick? Okay, since we kind of brought up Taz, is there anything, can you explain what the environment was like in Philadelphia, at least with the legend of was the, was the was the junior black mafia trying to get in the music business or like I, I mean again I'm I only hear things in hindsight like thirty years forty years after the fact but what was the presence of them in Philadelphia at all is Every, there anything you can speak on or no I just I mean everywhere you got black mafias you got them you got the mafia. Everywhere. Right. You've got organized crime involved in unorganized and organized living. Um, but I'm just so, saying that it was so different back, especially, like, okay, in the Joe and Sylvia Robinson. Uh, yeah. I was pretty sheltered from all of that, Amir. I okay. just didn't. I didn't. So I'm even sure. in Dillian Radio and stuff? Yeah, and... but I didn't. It, it, they didn't mess with me. Right. I was Kenny Gamble's woman. It, I didn't. I was oh, insulated okay. from that. <laughs> I didn't have to deal with that. Well, I, mean, I didn't mean you personally. I, I just meant like. It. No, but I, I mean. Was it there? Was it, it was. It's, I'm, I'm saying it was there. Okay. It is. It is here. It is everywhere. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But I was a little, as I, I said, protected and insular. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. That's all I wanted to it's know. It's just part of life. Good answer. I don't know. That's real, I, real just, talk. Yeah, factual, <laughs> actual. Oh, good answer. I mean, either you know what I'm saying. Like, but you know what, Amir? I want to take a moment to thank you all for having me today because I respect what you do. Having an opportunity to have long form discussions about the history and the culture is significant. So the role that each of you play with this broadcast, with your podcast, is significant. And personally. 
I'm so very proud of Laia because I changed her diapers. I, I was hey, there the day her uh, parents Give us Laia's story. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, we've never seen Laia's sluts. Uh, uh, like this. And, and She's fact, never done this. The fact that she holds her own with you she gentlemen because you're all formidable as is it she. Ain't easy. No, but, she, but she you, runs But us. you do it. But you do it. And I'm very proud of her because in the entertainment game, she has so many capacities as a woman in this business, as a professional. And uh, I love her. I love listening to her on the radio. I love watching her on TV. And uh, I think here, there's great promise. Well, you got she great lets parents. us know that. Yeah, well, that's fine. And I'll take some of the credit because I support her. I believe in her. She represents the now and the future for me as a woman in this game. So I'm very proud of you. I love you dearly. Oh, and uh, I all I can hey. say is bravo. Boy, is this the first the time that the guest, guest has done the sign off? 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%.100%. I can't wait to officiate your wedding. Uh, I'm available, Amir, if you should ever get married. All right. I'm yeah. willing to do if that. Uh, lost yeah. Fonte already. Oh, no, no. I'm here. Oh, oh, you mean uh, wedding? Well, oh, yeah. For, yeah. Oh, you yeah. sorry. I'm more to stable? Oh, no. Nah, no. Nah. Right. <laughs> no. But I'm a huge. Get my Nigerian yeah, right. How about that? No, I'm a huge. I love Fonte. And when he was talking about Nicolay, because I love the foreign exchange. Uh-huh. And so I developed a friendship with Nicolay, and that's how I met Fonte. Yeah, that was so, like she brought him back. Yeah, that is crazy. Man, do you? So, can I yes. tell the DM story? Is that or does that? Go ahead. This is the moment I really met Deanna Williams. All right? Okay, and she revealed more about me, re- revealed more about her than any interview, any anything. <laughs> okay, so we had met backstage at the uh, at the World Cafe Live thing, and so from that point on, like we follow each other on Twitter and everything, and so we're talking on Twitter one night, and it was late one night. And um, I don't remember what we were talking about, but it was talking about something on the timeline. And then we like we got into the DMs. And so we were laughing about something. And so I just hit her. I was like, oh, so how you been? It was good to meet you, everything. And she was like, Fonte, I'm tired. And I, you know, immediately I was just saying, I said, okay, well, I'm thinking, oh, man, you've been working so hard. You know, like, what's what's going on? And she res- gives me the greatest response that let me know that she was the illest. She says, I'm tired of niggas. <laughs> That's, I said, boy, look. I said, God I am damn. too. I am too. <laughs> and that said so much. That let me know. I said, yo, Deanna, yo, she the realest one out. From that point on, we've been cool. I said, listen, because she's so eloquent and so, you know, because you said like her, right. her aura. Everything's classic. When she just said, she, I'm tired of niggas. I, boy, I felt that shit in my soul. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's the the she's going back to Harlem. On behalf of Laia, Fonte, <laughs> Boss Bill, Unpaid Bill, Unpaid Sugar Bill. Steve, and myself, oh. niggas, uh, <laughs> we'd like to thank you, Deanna, for coming on the show. This has been a long time oh, coming. Thank you, yeah. This Quest Love Supreme only on Pandora. We will see you on the next go round. Thank you. Right. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn. Alliances will shift. 
and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 